Good morning again. If you have your Bibles, we are finishing up our study in the book of Titus. We're in Titus chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 15. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Mike and Doug have Bibles in their hands. They'd love to bring you one so you can follow along with us. Titus chapter 3, verses 8 through 15. As you're turning there, I just want to share with you a story. Um, many of you know Wally. Wally's right over here to my right. Raise your hand, Wally. Right there. Just raise your hand right there, Wally. Raise his hand. Wally's a truck driver, and uh, he drives um, hazardous materials wherever he goes. And this past week, he was in Connecticut. And he was on his way to Texas, and um, he was coming down a hill with a very steep grade. And all of a sudden, his, his brakes went out. His steering went out, and he's going down very quickly and, and you know, just praying and praying and praying and, and wanting people to get out of the way. And he comes up over hill, the only flat spot in this whole area right there, pulls off right to one side, right in front between two houses, right next to the curb. If one drop of this chemical spill, they'd have to evacuate a five-mile radius of where they're at. Absolutely, the grace of God, the hand of God. I just want to praise the Lord for that because that's just. When he called me, I said, "Man, God is so good. That is so cool." And so, hopefully, that encourages you guys. That man, that is awesome. What God can do. So, Titus chapter three, starting in verse eight, Apostle Paul says to Titus, "This is a faithful saying." And these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenas the lawyer and Apollos to their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. The title of my study this morning is Church Maintenance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, be in your word, and knowing, Lord God, that you're going to speak to our hearts because we're in your word, and it's your words to our hearts. And so, Lord, if we just read it this morning, Lord, you've already spoken to our hearts, but we know you have more to say to us as we really dig in, and we pray, Lord, for open ears to receive all that you have for us. Father, we pray if there's anyone here that is still yet to surrender their hearts to you, to give their lives to you completely, Lord, would you especially touch their heart? We thank you for our time together. We thank you for the work you're doing in our children's ministry through the teachers and the volunteers down there. Bless them as well, we pray. Bless our time. We give it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I've enjoyed looking at the book of Titus because we've seen uh, really some encouraging things, how to set things in order within the church. And we looked at how you need to appoint elders in the church. And we looked at how we should treat one another, the, how we should treat the older men and the older women and the younger men and the younger women. And we've looked at the importance of being a good employee. We also looked last week at how to live a godly life in an ungodly world. Well, Paul finishes up his letter with what I like to call church maintenance. Maintaining a godly attitude towards one another 
And yet also being aware of those around us that may seek to bring division or, or cause us to bring us down. So we need to have that kindness and compassion towards each other, and yet at the same time be discerning against those who would seek to cause division within the church. See, Paul here is, is warning us against problem people. I thought about that. Years ago, I read a book uh, called uh, Well-Intentioned Dragons, and and, uh, and about the same time I was reading that book, I, I attended a study uh, in California, preached a word conference, and Chuck Swindoll did a, a sermon called Boars in, God Vin- Boars in God's Vineyard. And I thought, boy, those are two interesting topics. You know, Boars in God's Vineyards and Well-Intentioned Dragons. They, kind of a, a similar purpose behind them, you know, dealing with problem people. And, and whether or not it's Boards in God's Vineyard or Well-Intentioned Dragons, any pastor, I think, would smile over those titles because they kind of know what it's like. Uh, let me give you a few just examples from the book Well-Intentioned Dragons. I couldn't find mine. I had to re-download it again from the Internet. But uh, I found this is Chapter 2 called Identifying a Dragon. The subtitle is Dragon Species. It goes like this. The first one is called The Bird Dog. It says, the bird dog, four-legged bird dogs point to where the hunter should shoot. The two-legged bird dog loves to be the pastor's eyes, ears, and nose, sniffing out items for attention. If I were you, I'd give Mrs. Greenlee a call. She has some marital problems you need to confront. Or, we need more activities for the youth. Or, why doesn't the church do something about, and you fill in the blank. He goes on, a particular bother is a super spiritual bird dog. This purebred strain is more likely to point out things that leave the pastor feeling defensive and not quite spiritual enough. The Lord has laid in my heart that we need more of a prayer ministry in the church. He says, who could argue otherwise? Or, we need to develop more discipleship and maturity within this congregation. Wouldn't you say so, pastor? These people like to give the impression that they have a more spiritual perception than anyone else. So that's the bird dog. Then he says there's the wet blanket. He says, if you've heard this phrase, it's no use trying, or it's, it's, it's close cousin, it's too much effort, you've probably spotted the wet blanket. These people have a negative disposition that's contagious, they spread gloom, erase excitement, and bog down the ministry. Their motto, nothing ventured, nothing lost. In business meetings, they exhibit the same attitude towards any step of faith. Oh, we've tried that before and it didn't work, it, it's a familiar refrain, because of their pessimistic Certainty, people are reluctant to vote against them. Then you have the anonymous blogger. These dragons may claim to be trying to save our church, but they do it by posting comments and accusations and interpretations on the Internet without attaching their names. Their main accomplishment is heightening a climate of suspicion and dissatisfaction. Without identifying themselves, they air the church's dirty laundry. Often there's no way to evaluate the truthfulness of the rumors they spread. He's got a bunch more. Let me give you a few more. The the sniper, who avoids face-to-face conflict but picks off pastors with pot shots and private conversations, such as the cryptic, be sure and pray for our pastor. He has some problems, you know. I do, so you need to pray for me anyway. (laughs) Then there's the the bookkeeper, who keeps a written record of everything the pastor does that isn't in the spirit of Christ. And then there's the merchant of muck, who breeds dissatisfaction by attracting others who know he's more than willing to listen to and elaborate things that are wrong within the church. And one more, the legalists, 
who lists of absolutes stretches from the kind of car pastor can drive to the dress code for the worship team to the type of disposable coffee cups the church uses. And he closes by saying, any of these can inhabit a given congregation. That's why I like what Stuart Briscoe once wrote. He said, to be a good pastor, you must have the mind of a scholar, the heart of a child, and the height of a rhinoceros. Now, I've got to say, after reading the descriptions of people, we've had some dragons come and go within the church and some boars in God's vineyard. And at times, I find myself being myself a boar in God's vineyard, a well-intentioned dragon, a wet blanket, a merchant of muck. But I would say that the body believers that we have right now, in my opinion, is one of the best. And I've enjoyed you guys so much. It's just a blessing to be around. I can't wait for Sunday mornings. I get excited about Sunday mornings. I, I'd, you know, I'd love to, to fellowship hours before service and hours after service with you guys. Because I just love our fellowship. And, and, and you know, I say that for myself, but I've had people come and visit. And they say, man, we just love your church. They have such an excitement towards the Word of God and, and towards worship and fellowship. It's just an exciting thing to see. Now, that doesn't make us perfect. Uh, one more quote from Well-Intentioned Dragons. The author writes this, The church, indeed every Christian, is an odd combination of self-sacrificing saint and self-serving sinner. And the church, unlike some social organizations, doesn't have the luxury of choosing its members. The church is an assembly of all who profess themselves believers. Within that gathering is found a full range of saint-slash-sinner combinations. Ministry is a commitment to care for all the members of the body, even those whose breath is tainted with dragon smoke. Well, if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to look at two points, just two this morning. Number one, problem people. And number two, steadfast saints. Number one, problem people. When it comes to problem people, I want to look at two things. How not to be a problem person and how to deal with a problem person. Number one, how not to be a problem person. Warren Wiersbe writes this, We wish we did not have problem people in our churches, but wherever you have people there's going to be problems. Now for Titus, for him, we looked at some of the problems that he had when we started our study in the book of Titus. There back in chapter 1, verse 10 through 12, uh, we read that there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, those that were Jewish, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And remember, Paul said, and that's true. They are. What he went on to say in verse 16, they profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Even though they had this vibrant church happening in Crete, a growing church, there were problem people within the church. And, and, and the world is full of problem people this morning as well, and we need to make sure that you and I are not a, a part of one of them. How do we do that? Three ways to not become a problem person. It starts with number one, forgiveness. Forgiveness. If you don't want to be a problem person, you need to have a heart of forgiveness. Keep your place in Titus and turn with me over to the Gospel of Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. Because Jesus here speaks on the topic of forgiveness. And he's talking to his disciples. In Luke chapter 17 and verse 1. He says to his disciples there. 
It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. So right off the bat, Jesus says, it's impossible that no offenses should come. In other words, somebody will offend you. Somebody is going to sin against you. It's impossible that it doesn't happen. It will happen. Listen to the way the NIV puts the same verse. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. Or the New Living Translation. There will always be temptation to sin, but what sorrow awaits a person who does the tempting. Whoa, Jesus says, watch out for the person who's causing someone to sin. That's a problem person. The person is tempting you to sin back towards him. Now what this is saying is we all have problems in this world because we sin. Now that shouldn't come as a shock or surprise to you. Let me tell you, I am a sinner. You may go, oh, I can't believe it. Tom, you're saying, yeah, it's true, I admit it. But guess what? So are you. (laughs) We all are, you know. We're all a bunch of sinners. And because one sin begets another sin, and if I sin towards you and, and your heart is not checked, and you sin back, then we become problem people sinning against one another. But there's an easy way to stop that. It's called forgiveness. Because we, we are prone to sin. And because we're people that do sin, forgiveness is, is what's required. We need to be forgiving people. Because the bottom line is, we're stuck together. I mean, we're part of the body of Christ. You know, we spend time together week after week in church. You know, we're going to spend eternity together. It's for that reason that, that, that we need to be forgiving people towards one another, you know. And, and, and the reason that we, we have to forgive one another is because we're sinners. Now, maybe you try and hide that. Maybe, you know, when you're, you're dating before you're married and, and you did your best to impress that guy or that gal and you neglected to show some of your, let's say, poorer qualities in your life that you've got. But then you got married. And then you became suddenly surprised to find out that when you put one sinner with another sinner and a house and say, live happily ever after, it's not as easy as it looks. Then throw a bunch of kids into the mix, and then you say, man, there's going to be contention, there's going to be friction, there's going to be anger, there's going to be hostility, there's going to be dragons, and there's going to be boars. But the only way that you're going to resolve that is, again, that attitude of forgiveness, having a forgiveness heart towards one another. So the first step in you not being a problem person is to be a forgiving person. Because if you're not a forgiving person... You're a problem person. Look at what Jesus says next in verses 3 and 4 of Luke chapter 17. He says in verse 3, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. I love this. Here you got the apostles and they're hearing, you know, Jesus say, forgive. But then they're blown away because Jesus says, if they sin against you seven times in one day. I mean, that's a lot of sinning against a person. Seven times in one day. And they're blown away and they're going, you want us to keep on forgiving them? Lord, that seems impossible. How do we, Lord, increase our faith. Uh, Let me have the faith to do that. You see, the point is forgiveness comes from faith in God's word and the confidence that God will work out the best for everyone involved so long as we do what he's calling us to do, to forgive one another. And yes, sometimes it is painful to forgive someone who has sinned against us, but we must 
Obey God's word by faith and believe that God will give you the strength to forgive. Now look at how Jesus responds to their request for an increase in faith. Look at verses 6 through 10 of Luke 17. So the Lord said, if you have the faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. And which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him who, when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat. But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper, gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have only done what was our duty to do. See, based on what Jesus is saying there, forgiveness is not an option. It's not a a choice. It's not a recommendation. Forgiveness is your responsibility. It's your duty as a servant of the Lord. We have done what was our duty to do, Jesus says. See, if I really want to live a life-freeing, liberating life and not become a problem person, then I need to have forgiveness in my heart towards those who have sinned against me. Now, if I want to stay bound, then when somebody does something to you, when they sin against you, they offend you, then don't forgive them. I mean, kind of like, you'll be miserable, you know? And then someone else will offend you and sin against you, and, and you can stay bound by not forgiving the next guy, and the next guy, and the next guy, and then pretty soon you find yourself with bitterness and anxiety in your heart and probably an ulcer in your gut. Why? Because you're holding on to everyone who's ever wronged you, and you just won't let it go. And because you won't let it go, it's going to continue to grow and grow, so that before long it's going to grow so much, it's going to fester. And the Bible says that unless you cut off the root of bitterness... It will defile many, Hebrews 12, 15. That's why forgiveness is so important, folks. One more quote from Well-Intentioned Dragons. Forgiveness seems like an unlikely tool to use before wars are completely resolved, but the effects of dragons can linger for years, sapping a church's strength unless the leaders demonstrate strong, visible forgiveness. Even in the midst of unresolved tensions, forgiveness must always be offered. I say amen to that. The world is full of problem people. We should not be one of them. It starts with forgiveness. But then the second way not to become a problem a person is, is, is the second word is submission. Turn back with me now to Titus chapter 3. Listen, when we think of the word submission, I think often some of us guys in the church, we immediately think of Ephesians 5.22. We got that one memorized. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. We got that one down. But wait a second, guys. If you have Ephesians 5.22 memorized, you need to have Ephesians 5.21 memorized. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Submit to one another. See, we all have the responsibility in love to be submitting to one another. To, to submit to whatever foreordained authority God has placed over our lives, as we looked at last week. Look at verse 1 and 2 of Titus 3. Paul said, Remind them to be subject to the rulers and authorities to obey, to be ready for every good work. So if we don't want to be a problem person, we need to be forgiving. We need to be submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. And then the third thing we need to do, if we're not going to be a problem person, is we need to be nice. Okay, just be nice. Now look at verse 8 of chapter 3. Paul writes, This is a faithful saying. And these things I, I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. 
These things are good and profitable to men. Now, the fact that we as believers are saved by the grace of God does not excuse us from performing good works. The fact of the matter is, Paul says, we are to be careful to maintain good works. Now, I love what J. Vernon McGee says about this. He says, my friend, after you've been saved, God is going to talk to you about good works. Until that time, God is not even interested in your good works because what you call a good work, God calls dirty laundry. The righteousness of man is filthy racked in his sight, Isaiah 64, 6. He doesn't want any of that. He wants to save you. If you do come to him just as you are, he will save you because he has done something for you. He's not asking you to do something. What could you do for God? After you are saved, after you are a child of God, then he wants to talk to you about producing good works. After you're saved, after you're a child of God, God wants to, you to maintain good works in your life. Another way of looking at it, simply put, is God wants you to be nice. You know, I think of, of Toy Story. If you've ever saw the movie Toy Story, the animation movie, where Woody the cowboy, he's in the, in the hands of Sid the Destroyer. And he's mutilated all these toys, and, and he's in the hand, and, and Woody's had enough, and he, he turns his head all the way around in a circle, and he looks up at Sid, and he says, Play nice. And Sid gets all freaked out and runs away screaming and yelling because his toy came alive. Listen, being nice nowadays is not a common thing that we see. And I look around and see a lot of angry people. I walk into the store and people just got these attitudes that are going on. Like, Man, what is wrong with you? I think, Man, just a simple smile might change everything. I mean, when was the last time you were around somebody that was really, really nice and they just blessed you and you walked away saying, boy, they were so nice found a story about a man who asked his wife what she'd like for her birthday. I'd love to be six again, she replied. Well, on the morning of her birthday, he got up bright and early and off they went to the local theme park. Uh, what a day. He put on every ride in the park, the death slide, the screaming loop, the wall of fear, everything there was. Five hours later, she staggered out of the theme park, her head reeling and her stomach up, upside down. Right to McDonald's they went where her husband ordered her a Big Mac along with extra French fries and a refreshing chocolate shake. Then it was off to the movie, the latest Star Wars epic, and hot dogs and popcorn, Pepsi-Cola and M&M's. What a fabulous adventure. Finally, she wobbled home with her husband and collapsed into the bed. He leaned over and lovingly asked, Well, dear, what was it like being six again? One eye opened and she says, You idiot, I met my dress size. <laughs> now you have to admire the man's niceness I mean he was try, just trying to be nice wanting to please his wife now I have to say that for the most part you know coming from Southern California people are nice in Springfield okay but there are times when you meet certain people that, that you would say they would not win any awards for niceness it's at those times that, that you can take the initiative and you can give them a smile and say, have a nice day. I'll pray for you today. Because we live in a world of people that aren't nice, in a place where we're all prone to sin. And for you to choose to be nice in that environment, you're going to stand out. It's going to cause someone to say, Man, boy, that was nice of you. And we can do things in the simplest ways. When you go to lunch today, you know, you're at the restaurant, you can tell the waitress is having a hard time and, and she's frustrated. And, 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 you know, instead of you, you know, getting upset and, 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 and copying an attitude, be nicer to her. You know, give her an extra tip, you know, give, write some encouraging word on the receipt. 
Or maybe you're in traffic today and a, a car is signaling and pulling into your lane. Instead of speeding up and not letting them in front of you, since they put their blinker on, you could actually slow down and let them in the lane in front of you. Especially if they had their blinker on for the last 200 feet as you're going up National Avenue, needing to get over to turn because you're late for an appointment. And it would just be nice to let me in. Okay, if that was you and you didn't let me in, I do forgive you. I'm not holding bitterness. But here's my point. You know, if you're careful to maintain good works, you're going to be that example of what it means to be a representative of Jesus Christ, a Christian. And you'll avoid being that problem person. Because when you're nice to someone, it has a way of reaching that person who might have been, you know, may not have been receptive to the gospel or receptive to coming to church. You know, you, you build that relationship. Man, that was so nice. Hey, you know, why don't you come to church? And maybe that's how it was when you first came to Calvary. Someone was nice to you and cared about you in a certain way. And, and then they said, you know, we have this church and it's really like a family. And I think you'd really be blessed if you come out and, and we're growing in God's word. And man, you want to come? And because they sense that niceness, that good work that you poured into their lives and, and you show them that, they, they're going to want to come. Maybe they were, maybe, you know, that happened to you, that then they were successful in, in leading that person into a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ, or, or maybe even perhaps leading them to, to God and salvation uh, for the first time. But it really starts with us being nice, and, and being nice is still a nice thing to do and a nice thing to be. Be careful to maintain good works, Paul says. It, it's church maintenance. And again, again, because our society is getting more and more filled with not nice people, it gives us the opportunity to really shine in our community. And Paul says in verse 8, these things are good and profitable to men. So we've seen how not to be a problem person by being forgiving, submissive, and nice. But now, number two, when it comes to problem people, how, how, we, how we are to deal with a problem person, how to deal with a problem person. Obviously, the first step needs to be prayer. We need to be praying for the people that, that are, Paul describes as problem people. But he also tells Titus and the church to avoid conversations with them and even reject them altogether. Look now at verse 9 of Titus chapter 3. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Man, Paul does not mince words, does he? He just lays it right there on, on the line. I'm glad he does that. Now, he's not talking about people who have problems. We all have problems, and we should not avoid people with problems, but to seek to minister in good works and in kindness. But when it comes to the problem people that Paul is describing here, these are those that are constantly wanting to argue, constantly causing arguments. They, they have contentions and they're a divisive spirit. And, and Paul says, avoid them. And the reason being really is, is actually to help them. And so for them to realize that their behavior is breaking up relationships, it's disruptive. Keep your place in Titus and now turn with me back just a couple of pages to, to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. We were there not too long ago. 2 Timothy 2, verse 15 through 20. Paul writes to Timothy, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. 
and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already passed, and they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Remember these guys, Hymenaeus and Philetus, Hymie and Phil, I think we called them. They believed that their doctrinal position was so right and that everybody else's doctrinal position was so wrong that they started shoving down the throats of, of people in the church their doctrinal position. And they began to push and to push, telling everybody how right they were and how everybody else was wrong. The Apostle Paul, Apostle Paul tells Timothy, you know, Hymenaeus and Philetus, they need to get out of here. They need to go boot them. Their spirit, Paul says, their message in this particular reference is like cancer, he says in verse uh, uh, 17. In the NIV, it says it's like gang, gang green. Now, do you know about gang green? I, I don't want to be too specific without, because it might gross us out, but, but gang green is when a part of the body has become so poorly diseased that rehabilitation is not possible. In other words, if a part of your hand has got gangrene on it, you just can't say, well, my hand needs a little exercise, it'll get better, a little lotion. No, it's got to be got to got to be gone. I mean, the only thing you can do is cut it off. But you see, that's exactly what you do to somebody who's in the body of Christ that is very uh, contentious in their spirit, when they're they're constantly saying, "Well, I'm right and you're wrong, and I want to be exalted and you need to be put down." And typically, people like that they have their their pet doctrine, like Hymenaeus and Philetus, and they're saying things like the resurrection had already passed. Did you miss the resurrection? You know, it's gone. And, and, and they believed that and they felt they were right and everybody else was wrong. Now, typically the best thing to do with people like that is to, to simply take a step back and avoid them. Now, why do you do that? Well, get enough people to avoid them that they will eventually go, what's up? What's wrong with me? I think I have gangrene or some disease. That's what I'm, I'm treated like. And I want to know what's going on. And hopefully a change will take place in their hearts. So this is what Paul is talking about. Turn back with me now to chapter 3, verse 9 of Titus. So Paul goes on to verse 9. He says, Avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Now, a problem person, they're going to be looking for foolish disputes. What's a foolish dispute? Well, let's break the words apart. Uh, the word dispute could also be translated question, 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 and the word foolish in the Greek is the word uh, moros, where we get our English word moron from. Moronic questions. I, I mean, that, that's what you got. Avoid those that have these moronic questions. They just want to debate to you about things that are just moronic. Could God create a stone so heavy that he couldn't even lift it? Can God create a prison so secure, secure that he cannot escape from it? Where did Cain get his wife? Now, I'm always leery if someone who's interested in another man's wife anyway, so I would want to answer that. But I found out that the, the, the percentage of those, I mean, probably 90% of those people with the foolish disputes are generally over someone wanting to either deny the Word of God or twist the Word of God as to justify sin in their lives. Well, I could do this because. And, 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 and they, you know, they have this, this and, and well, will you tell me this? And they have this question like that. See, there, there are people in Crete who needed to hear the gospel. They needed to get saved. But instead, these folks were coming in, these problem people, and they were 
arguing with people and, and, and pu- pushing their, their beliefs and their positions and, and saying, well, ours is the only true way to be a Christian. And they were preventing people from getting saved, striving to convince others that they and they alone were right. Arguing about genealogy, contentions, and striving about the law. Paul says this kind of behavior is unprofitable and useless. You know, the word for useless there is the word vain. And in the Greek, it could also be translated idolatry. So it's a form of idolatry as they get so stuck on their point of view that it becomes their idol and they're making everyone else believe that. He says, Paul says, be careful. So I don't think it's by chance that Paul wrote these words, avoid arguing over genealogies, contentions, and strivings. Now, I don't think we, we would argue over genealogies, but back then to the Jewish people, that was a big deal. Who you were, what family you came from was a big deal. They used it as a kind of ranking above one another to prove that they had the right to have their point of view over your point of view. Well, I was born to this line. I was born to that. So, so who are you? You know, and so they, they would do that. Paul says, stop that. It's a form of idolatry. Now we could take that to our time frame and we can say, well, it's our, our degrees that we hold. Uh, how long I've been a Christian? Well, you know, I've been a Christian for 20 years or I got my master's in theology and so I got, you know, and it's the same thing. Paul is saying, stop that. You know, you know, you're like, and sometimes when it, when it, when it, you get into these situations, it really boils down to the person just being contentious. That word contentious in verse 9 means to strive in a heavy way. Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't want you to think that you can never have a serious debate with, with, with a brother or sister in the Lord that doesn't agree with, with, with a certain thing that you've come to discover. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, I challenge you. Whatever I say in God's Word, you know, make sure, be a Berean. Make sure these things are true. And if it's not, if it's something that's opposite, then can come and bring them to me. Show me what it is. And between fellowships here and believers, man, you can get together, you know, and, 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 and share with these things. And you make sure you know why you believe what you believe and make sure you know the difference as to why you believe differently than perhaps I believe. Because here's the deal. If I'm with somebody that I love and we're sharpening our swords, we're taking scriptures out together and I'm showing you something and you're showing me something, it's exciting. Man, look at this verse. This is what God showed me. Well, yeah, well look at this verse. Well, I think this about this verse. Well, I think this about this verse. Well, yeah, well, that's really cool. Look at this. That can be very holy, a very, very great moment. But the problem is when it turns heavy. Well, no, this is what it says. And, and man, you better, man, you're wrong. Man, you're going to hell. No, that's not what, what he's saying there. And you start hacking at him with the word and cutting him down. And after debate after debate, well, I, but I've won. I did it. I'm the greatest because I studied longer. I know more. Is that really our objective? <laughs> no way. That's why Paul is saying be very, very careful not to fall into this foolish arguments because they're unprofitable. They're useless. And again, there are some people who are just striving to get an answer, but, but there are also some people who just want to debate for the sake of debate. They want to argue for the sake of arguing. And if it becomes contentious between two people who call themselves Christians and they start hurling insults back and forth, and sooner or later, man, you've got a bigger problem on your hands. Because at some point in time, differences in doctrine need to give way to the higher calling of love and mercy and grace and joy. But, what if we still have, are having problems with the problem people? How do you deal with them? Well, look at verse 10. Paul tells us, Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Reject a divisive man or woman. If you have a 
problem person who's divisive, then you are to reject them, he says. Divisive is also translated heretic. If you have a heretic in the bunch. Now let me say this. I've had people come to my door dressed very, very nicely. They've had their car parked up the street and they come knocking on the door with a magazine in their hands and they want to tell me about their Jehovah Witness doctrine. Or maybe, you know, it's a couple of clean-cut young men and they have their, young men, they have their bikes parked out in front and they want to introduce me to the Mormon doctrine. See, both these doctrines I, I, I understand. I've been a Christian long enough and I, I've, I've studied their doctrine and I, and I know what I believe and I know what they believe. So perhaps a Mormon comes to my door and, I, and, and they say to me, well, I don't know if you know this or not, but Joseph Smith said that Jesus Christ came to America and that Joseph Smith was given the special revelation to find out what Jesus did in America. Now at this point, you can have a conversation with them and you can say to them, now, now wait a minute, you say that, that Jesus was here in the United States of America? When did that happen? And who did he witness to? Well, he witnessed to the Indians. Okay. Is there archaeological evidence of Jesus Christ being in the United States of America and ministering to the Indians? Where was this and, and when did it happen? Well, you see, the Book of Mormon says, well, hold, hold, hold on a minute. You see, I hate to burst your bubble, but the Smithsonian, a uh, secular institution, the, the, the Smithsonian Institute, they actually put a paper out that stated that the Book of Mormon has no archaeological evidence tying it to any Indian group whatsoever here in the United States of America. And they say that the Book of Mormon is unsound as a document. Oh, well, well, well wait a minute. I, I know that I'm right with what I believe because I had a burning in my bosom. And many Mormons will, will, will talk about a burning in the bosom that they had to, it, this witness in, in my heart. And at that point, you can say to them, well, so you felt something in your heart and you say, well, that's why you're a Mormon. Well, did you know my Bible says that, that I'm not to follow my heart because the Bible says the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things who can know it? I can't trust my entire life to filling in my bosom as evidence that I'm right with God. No, that would be unbiblical. And here's my point. When you know your Bible and you use the Bible to show them what the Mormon doctrine shouldn't teach, you may have a, a new Mormon. You know, they usually have the older and the younger. You may have that, that, the younger one come in and go, well, that's really interesting. I never knew that. Well, tell me, tell me some more. And you challenge them with a few things and, and, and then you're not to reject them but that you're rather hoping to share with them the information from God's Word to use as a sword in a righteous way to touch their hearts. But Paul warns them. Warn them once, talk to them a second time, but don't continue dialoguing with those who are in the heresy. You get the older guy coming, and he's just not going to hear, and he's arguing with you, and he's not listening. Well, what about this, and what about this? It's time to reject it. Why? Because you're wasting your time, you're spinning your wheels, you'll get nowhere fast. There's really no point in wasting a lot of time trying to convert heretics. Don't, don't do it. They're, they're warped and they're sinning, Paul says. Tell them the truth once. Tell them a second time. They reject them knowing that they've condemned themselves. So, in dealing with the problem person, we're to pray, we're to avoid, and to re- reject. And us not becoming a problem person, we're to be forgiving and submissive and nice. One more quote from Well-Intentioned Dragons. You can tell I, I took a good look at this book last week. But the author writes this. Pastors who personify a non-defensive spirit of joy and generosity tend not to attract as many dragons. And when they are attacked, the majority of the congregation begins to notice something amiss. When the fruit of the Spirit becomes characteristic of the church's daily life, it becomes painfully clear whenever one person violates that spirit and the body itself will work to take care of the irritation. It's kind of like having a scrape or a cut 
And all of a sudden the antibodies come in and they come to fix it. And the church is the same way. There's a, a divisive person that's kind of cut. All of a sudden these antibodies come in and they're, 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 they're fixing these things that are going on. See, when, when we're careful to maintain good works, the Spirit of God works through the church of God to take care of whatever comes our way. And this brings us to our final point. Paul closes out his letter to Titus with some good words about some steadfast saints. Look at verse 12. When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenus the lawyer. Oh, he's sending the lawyer in. I don't know, is he sending him in or is he sending him away? I don't know. You can decide for yourself. But the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste that they may lack nothing. Verse 14. And let our people also learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. There's that word again that we are to, to learn to maintain good works, that we are to stand in our good works. Why? To meet urgent needs that they may be unfruitful. Not be unfruitful. I mean, I love this. Paul is saying you'll be unfruitful if you are aware of an immediate need and you do not meet that need. That's what he's saying. If you see a need in the body of Christ and you don't meet that need, you're going to be unfruitful. You're going to be unfruitful. See, if God has placed a need right in your lap and you've chosen not to meet that need, it's not good. God wants us to go the opposite direction, to seek to bless. And if there's an immediate need in a person's life around us, then do what we can. He says, you're going to bear as much fruit, you'll be fruitful. Because maintaining good works is being in a position when you are, are a forgiving person, a submitting person, and an understanding, or being a nice person. And it's that niceness that is causing other people to look on and to say, wow, there's a group of people over there at Calvary Chapel. They're just so nice. This is great. What makes them behave that way? And you have that opportunity based on, on your deeds to say, well, let me tell you why I behave this way. It's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about His grace, what He's done in my life. As we close this morning, let me ask you, where are you at this morning? Are you a problem person or are you making sure you're not a problem person? Listen, if we would just do these few things, these last few verses here at the end of the book of Titus, we would not be the problem people that, that we're prone to be or that we used to be. That's what makes coming to the house of God, coming to church so good for us. Because we can come in as problem people and know that the problems are going to get addressed so we can go out through the Word and we can leave here as a steadfast saint. All it takes is us praying and asking God to make us no longer problem people. Then He changes our hearts and He transforms our lives. And then we can make the difference in the world. Listen, thanks to Paul's letter to Titus, we have just completed church maintenance. Man, we've looked at the practical things that need to be going on in the church. It's a great book uh, to read and, and, and we need to, uh, you know, think through these things and pray and remind each other of these things. I encourage you, you know, when you get home, maybe sometime this week, go through the book again, read the whole book of Titus, the whole letter again, and pray through the things that we have learned. Remind us of these things again. And as you do, begin and end your study as Paul did in his letter here with an appreciation of God's undeserved, un- unlearned, unmerited favor poured out upon you, poured out upon me. In other words, begin and end it with grace. And that's how Paul ends it here. Grace be with you all. Amen. I love that. Listen, if you're here this morning, if you've never experienced the grace of God in your life, having your sin forgiven, being born again, 
I encourage you, as soon as service is over, the elders are going to be up front. would love for you to come up and pray with us, for you to give your life to Jesus Christ. Surrender your heart to Him. For the rest of us, man, let's walk in the grace of God, looking how we can be nice to others and, and, and show the goodness of God in our lives to, re, to reach them for Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we want to pray in these things in our lives so that we are not problem people. Lord, I don't want to be a problem person to the church. And I know we don't want to be those people. And so, Lord, help us to be forgiving towards one another, to be submissive towards one another, to be nice and kind towards one another. Lord, help us to beware of, of those things that would draw us away, Lord, to... to uh, the false doctrines, the false teachers that are out there, Lord God. That we would have our shields up. We would know your word and know how to respond to give every man an answer for the hope that lies within us. And Father, I just pray, Lord, for our coming week, Lord, that you would give us those opportunities to show you to our neighbors, to our family, to our friends, to invite someone into fellowship, Lord, that we can love on them and encourage them or that we might even see them give their life to you. That's our prayer. And Lord, I pray if there's anybody here that is yet to turn surrender their hearts to you, to give their life to you. Lord, they would do so this morning. So we thank you for this day today, Lord. We thank you for your goodness and kindness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll stand and do one last song together.